they used to drag me outside until I actually enjoyed it. Um, but. <laughs> Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. All right. Our guest today is Brian Turbush. And Brian, I'm going to just let you introduce yourself because I won't do it justice. That's kind of my typical cop out for all guests. But why don't you tell us? <laughs> Brian, why are you here today? We're actually here to talk about something very specific. And I want to hear your, your I want to hear you. I don't want to hear me. Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, I am the Earthquake and Volcano Program Coordinator for Washington State's Emergency Management Division. So kind of just focus on a lot of our earthquake and volcano hazards within Washington State and help people to understand what those are so they can get better prepared for them. So I'm going to interrupt you and just because this is the way my brain works. You know, as kids in the backyard, we'd play cowboys and Indians, cops and robbers, how did you get into this career? What what was your career path to get? This is not something that you you know grew up to be. I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong, but how how did you get to where you are today? Well, honestly, I was a little surprised <laughs> that this was a career path as well. Um, but I've always been fascinated by geology, rocks, um, looking at landscapes, and wondering. Why does that look like that? Um, and okay. actually, when I was kind of young, my family dragged me out here. Um, they used to drag me outside until I actually enjoyed it. Um, but <laughs> one of the things we got to do was uh, climb Mount St. Helens in 2004. Uh, and from that point on, I've just been completely fascinated with volcanoes. Um, okay. Now, I grew up in New York, so I didn't have many of them around to study. So I've found uh, going through a geology and then a volcano geophysics degree, I've been slowly moving west. And now I am living in a place that has far more geologic hazard than I grew up in. But uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting place. So I'm happy to be here. So where, where did you go to school at? Where did you get your degrees from? A small school called Hartwick College in New York, um, okay. initially for geology, but then uh, Boise State University for geophysics. Okay. We had a, a early on in the podcast, we had, do you know who Nick Zentner is? Oh, yes, he does. So Nick was, yeah. Nick was a guest <laughs> and kind of like, kind of like our episode today. Um, Nick, here's how it went. So Nick and I went on, we had a 30 seconds of, of warm up, and he goes, all right, let's just go. And I'm like, <laughs> Uh, and he was great. I mean, he, he's so entertaining and he makes the topic. Um, yeah, I guess you're either into rocks or you're not. Let's, let's just, I don't think there's a lot of us that are like, yeah, they're okay. I mean, we're like, I don't care. Or I I'm fascinated. And, and it sounds like you're one of those that are fascinated by them. Absolutely. And yeah, it, it depends. I think, uh, I tend to think volcanoes like are like exploding rocks. So that naturally makes them a little more exciting and, Earthquakes are very well, exciting uh, when they happen. Definitely on, more on the scary side of exciting. Uh, but yeah, we so, want to make sure people know what to do about them. Right. And so today we're, we're, we're going to talk kind of about the Great Washington Shakeout. But before we go there, I, actually, I'd like to kind of, can we do Earthquake 101? Like for somebody who doesn't think about earthquakes... What is the, what creates these seismic events? There, I use two big words together, seismic events. Um, I like it. What, what, what kind of, like how, 
how do these how do these things happen and why? Okay, so earthquakes happen because the crust of the Earth uh, deforms elastically. Think of like a rubber band. When you stretch it out, it springs back into place. Um, okay. So our crust is very similar to that, except it's compressing together. So more like a spring than a rubber band um, that you're pushing together. Um, and when it reaches a certain point of friction, um, again, we're just using different metaphors here, but think like two blocks sliding against each other. They're going to reach a point where it overcomes that force of friction and it slips. Now in okay. Washington, we have multiple kinds of earthquakes that might happen. Um, and an earthquake is just when that ground slips, these waves um, kind of like the waves that move through water. Um, some are kind of like sound waves as well. They move through the crust and that's the shaking that you feel. Uh, so here in Washington, we actually have three different earthquake sources that can cause this. Um, so a lot of people have heard about the big one, the Cascadia subduction zone. Uh, so off Washington's coast, we have the Juan de Fuca plate, which is subducting beneath the North American plate. Uh, now this is subducting just, going underneath, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, so that plate is more dense than the continental okay. crust. And so when the two come together, the Juan de Fuca plate is moving underneath, kind of like creating okay. a wedge out there. Now through there, that's where you get that big friction point. Um, and we know that our last earthquake on that fault was January 26th, 1700. Uh, oh, we know an exact date because folks. How? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one because this causes tsunamis. And uh, oh. actually, a geologist named Brian Atwater was studying this for a while. And eventually, they went to a place in Japan looking for this information. And they had a story on that date about a wave, a tsunami that arrived across the ocean uh, with no known origin. Now, you can look at that and you look at um, the dates that the trees died here. Because when that subduction happens, the, the crust actually drops about six feet on the coast. So these these trees on the coast are suddenly inundated with salt water and they can't really survive there. So you can find out when those died and mix that with this date of this wave arriving in Japan. I said, wow, a large earthquake here happened here. Uh, there's also knowledge from a lot of the native cultures that have lived here for a long time. And if we trace that back, this is something that has happened multiple times uh, through Washington's history. It's a repeating cycle, very similar to like the 2011 earthquake that happened in Tohoku in Japan or the Andaman Islands, uh, one that happened in 2004. Um, so that's one of our earthquake sources. So let me, let me just, let me, uh, let me interrupt you because it, I'm, I'm fascinated, stunned that it's, scientists were able to reverse engineer this, this date of, you know, 300 years ago. Um, it wasn't like it was on Facebook to tell us that it just happened. Oh no. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And, um, but one thing, so what you said that, well, what I was hearing was that this event, the 1700 event went from North America towards Asia. So the tsunami left our shores, if you will, and, and went and traveled that direction. Is that kind of what we predict will happen next time? I mean, so, it, it, with that plate, with this Wanda Fuka, help me out. Those two plates, are they typically going to always be going that direction or can it come, will it impact our shores? Oh, to clarify on that, yes, the tsunami, uh, when that occurs, there is definitely the largest wave that occurs will come towards our coast, towards the west coast of the U.S., um, okay. And that's where we really need to worry about the hazard. 
However, these displace a huge volume of water and it spreads out kind of in a circle radially away from the source. Um, so oh. other places like Alaska might get this as well. Um, the wave travels very quickly across the Pacific Ocean, probably taking about eight to 11 hours to reach that location. Um, but for example, um, in the 2011 tsunami, Crescent City, California, and parts of Oregon also received tsunami waves. They were only about a meter high, but they did a couple million dollars worth of damage to the marinas that they arrived in. Um, oh, wow. Because this is kind of like, it's more like a tide than a wave. It's just a column of water moving. Okay. Yeah. Very strong currents as well. Um, well, and so approximately... How many miles? You said eight, eight to eleven hours to, and how many miles is that? Is that like oh, five thousand miles? <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, it that's, travels. <laughs> that's that's hundreds of miles an hour. I mean, this is yes. not okay. So this is not some leisurely. This is this is a a massive wall of well volume of water traveling very quickly. Yes. So okay. the danger right. with tsunamis um, when they're traveling across the ocean in very deep water, uh, mm-hmm. they travel very quickly. But like a lot of other kinds of waves, when they start to reach shallow water, uh, yes, out out in the open ocean, these are barely noticeable because there's so much water underneath. Uh, the wave is more like an energy transfer through the ocean. So when it gets to that lower, um, shallower water, you kind of get all the energy bunching up. It slows down a lot. Um, it's no longer moving 300 to 500 miles per hour, but it slows wow. down and it gets taller. And that's where you okay. get these these massive waves that inundate the area. Um, and that's where the real danger is. Okay. Okay. So you mentioned there was three 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 plates. So we talked about one. Yeah, three different types of earthquakes. Right. Um, so another one, two. if you were in Washington in 2001, uh, you might be familiar with the Nisqually earthquake we had. Uh, yep. <laughs> no, that yep. is a, I would be happy to hear your story about that, actually. Um, okay. So in 2001, I was working graveyard at Starbucks coffee in the IT department. Okay. And I had just gone to bed and we had a Bernese mountain dog who weighed about 150 pounds. And I thought he jumped on the bed, which was out of character for him. So that was my, that's my story. What I can tell you is that when I went to work, the, uh, damage to the building was quite interesting to see how it um because starbucks corporate headquarters is in a, an old building in in seattle in the soto district um it used to be the sears and robux warehouse so it's this you know 110,000 120,000 square feet per floor old wooden and brick structure mm-hmm. and so it all the cracks were stair step and it was quite interesting to see and then the data center um that i was working in the uh so there was the racks of servers. I don't know if you're familiar with server racks. Yes. Okay. So, okay. So, um, so Starbucks at that time had, um, with, uh, Microsoft based servers, sun Unix systems based servers and a IBM AS 400, which is like, um, uh, its own classification. Anyway, it was, uh, it was very robust. The, fire suppression system was triggered and blew into all the sun boxes and they didn't have covers over the top of them. Oh, so it destroyed, no. it damaged all. Yeah. The, the boxes probably would have been fine, but the AS 400 was literally tipped on its side. Huh. So it was, it had these large disc arrays and then the, the, the giant CPU and they were all tipped and they were still working. Oh, 
It, it's still working. <laughs> yeah, the thing the thing survived the earthquake. Everything else was damaged, but this AS400 was literally tipped on its side, not completely on its side, but you know, at an angle. And uh, it was still working. And so um, it was quite a lot of uh, retrofitting to that building that went on for a number of years afterwards. And uh, good. I think Starbucks also began its diversification of its data centers at that point. That was kind of, I think they had already started, but they definitely uh, realized that they couldn't have all their, their eggs in one basket, if you will, um, because Starbucks is a global company needs a global infrastructure uh, that's redundant. And, uh, but the, the weird thing is the only person that I heard of that got hurt in the building. Cause it, it happened. What time was that? It was, must've been it was uh, think- nine to five. It was, business hours yeah early morning um, i think yeah somebody um, so, so starbucks had you know fluorescent lights kind of not shop lights like but you know kind of that same sort of thing hanging from chains mm-hmm. and one of them swung and hit somebody in the in gash their head that was the only injury ouch nobody nobody was significantly hurt just a just a flesh wound um <clears throat> So that was that was my experience. How about you? Were you were you here in two thousand and one? I was not here in two thousand one for that earthquake. Oh, see, you which is why it. I always like to hear people's stories. So thank you for indulging. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a ton of interesting ones from there, and it's kind of that wake up call. And we were very fortunate with this earthquake because this is the most common kind we're likely to get. Um, kind of going back to the the mechanism for how this happens. These happen in that subducting Juan de Fuca plate. So when it gets okay. down to about 30 miles deep, um, the ground starts to heat up in there. It's it's diving into the mantle of the earth a little bit. Um, okay. And when the rock heats up, it releases some of the minerals on there. Um, it releases some water from the minerals that are there. It becomes brittle. And then uh, that's also where the plate starts to bend into the mantle. Um, and all right, here's one for any legally blonde f- fans out there. It bends and snaps. Bends and snaps. Okay. And that snap reverberates up through the crust. And that's when we get these earthquakes. Magnitude 6. Uh, I think up to 7.2 is about the, the max we can get. But um, these are not small earthquakes. And because they're 30, uh, 30 miles or so down, they come up to the surface and they radiate out and they affect a very large area. So again, you felt okay. this in, uh, in Seattle area. It was also largely mm-hmm. felt in Olympia, probably about the same shaking intensity. Um, mm-hmm. And even up to areas like Portland um, still felt and, and Vancouver and British Columbia. Um, this had pretty strong shaking over a very wide area. Um, so that's the danger with these. And these are um, because they can happen anywhere along that plate, this is kind of our most likely large earthquake scenario that is going to happen. So let me ask you, you said six to 7.2. How, how is it that you can scientifically, how are you guys able to determine that that's kind of the, the probable range that these things can do? Um, so that's kind that of just an estimate of what okay. range okay. would actually cause damage here in Washington. Um, okay. Smaller ones at that depth are less likely to cause damage because it, it loses energy as you get farther away from the earthquake's hypocenter, that place deep underground. Um, okay. 
you think of these earthquakes have magnitude, which is kind of mm-hmm. how much energy they release. Um, what you feel in your different area is considered the earthquake shaking intensity. So each mm-hmm. earthquake is one magnitude, but uh, multiple intensities. Now, these are on a scale from the USGS, the Modified Mercalli Intensity Scale, which is described Oh, yeah, on- that, I know that. No, Excellent. Teasing. Sorry. <laughs> Not a lot of people do, so I'd like to take any opportunity I can to explain this. That's the important number to where you are. Because we get people in okay. California all the time, and they're like, oh, I don't get out of bed for larger than a five. I'm like, a five where? A five right under you is very different than a five even 10 miles away. Um, so that's the thing to think about. It's the intensity that you feel. Um, so okay. when you have that uh, magnitude six to seven, it's 30 miles below the surface, is much different than a magnitude seven right below the surface, which is our third category right. of earthquake we can talk about. Okay. So Washington is also kind of crisscrossed by all of these shallow crustal faults. Now this is as those two plates, as the Juan de Fuca and the North American plates come together, the the crust is kind of crunched up. Um, oh, and it's also twisting a little bit. And because of that, you just get all these places where... Uh, the ground is broken and they become these planes where it's locked together by friction, but it can slip. So these are considered faults. Uh, now we okay. have like a Seattle fault that's roughly under I-90. If only they had known, they probably wouldn't have put I-90 right there. But um, again, we have one through Tacoma as well, Tacoma Fault. They got these pretty creative names like that. Uh, Olympia Fault structure right under there. And then the Southern would be Island Fault. These are kind of the big ones in the sound area. But these faults are all over Washington. We have them in eastern and central Washington as well. So, so being much closer to the surface, these these have a couple of complications. One, the shaking would be much more intense. Um, so you can compare. I'm sorry, I don't have a good example in my mind right now, so I'm not going <laughs> to. Um, <laughs> um, but yes, uh, if you want to compare earthquake intensity, you have the these deep earthquakes. So you had that 40-watt light bulb. That's your magnitude 7 earthquake. It gives off the same amount of energy everywhere you are. Mm-hmm. You're 30 miles away, or even just change those miles to feet. You're 30 feet away from that light bulb. It's going to look not very intense. Mm-hmm. But you put that light bulb right up under the surface, those same 40 watts are going to be a lot brighter. Um, and that's a good way to imagine that intensity. The okay. shaking from here is going to be a lot stronger um, from these earthquakes that happen right at the surface. Um, so that does okay. not look very good for, um, again, the Seattle fall goes roughly right under I-90. Um, so that's an area where this could happen. Where's the, uh, do you know, where are the Tacoma and the Olympia fault lo- located at? Uh, they're kind of diagonal through the sound. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't have a, uh, you can look okay. up maps of where all these faults are from the Washington Geological Survey. Okay. Um, on the department of natural resources website okay Um, they have some really good interactive maps you can like type in your address on their geology portal and you can see all the wonderful geologic hazards um, which i recommend (laughs) doing not to scare you but just so you can be more aware of it so before we before we transfer transition over to volcanoes i want to i want to ask you a question because i think i think this way and if i think this way i've never been known as a, a a in a, you know, an original thinker. So I got to think other people think this way too. I, th- I'm of the Im- impression that earthquakes are something that Western Washington needs to worry about. And that Eastern Washington, we don't have that problem. I think a lot of people are under that impression with you. 
Now, that's not entirely accurate. Um, There are definitely some of these faults in eastern Washington as well. And the other thing about faults is when there's not earthquakes happening, they're kind of hard to find. (laughs) Um, So a couple of the ones we we definitely know about, there is a fault that goes through kind of the the Walla Walla area. Um, And actually our largest earthquake that we've recorded um, since folks have settled here, there's definitely stories from the people that have lived here for thousands of years. Um, but back in 1872, was near Lake Chelan on what is now called the Chelan Fault. Mm-hmm. Um, now we've estimated back, um, they can only make this estimate based on the intensities, um, which is based on what people described. You can see newspaper articles from the time of a lot of people were scared and like ran out of their cabins. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of stories in the newspaper about that. And what's fun is because the... Uh, Mercalli intensity scale is based on what people felt. You can compare, oh, this person said the chimney was broken. What intensity does the chimney breaking happen at? Um, so they can actually project back and create kind of like a shake map based on where people were when they made those projections. Um, but this was roughly somewhere between, it's hard to tell just based on that, but this was a surface fault in that area, mm-hmm. probably somewhere between a 6.8 and 7.4 earthquake. Um, so a very significant one in that area. Um, and that's our, our largest one we have in the historical recordings in Washington. Um, there were also back in 2001, not just the Nisqually quake, um, but there was a small earthquake swarm right under Spokane. I think the largest one was about a 4.1. Um, but yeah, there is, there is something out there. Uh, and we have okay. some other ones along the Columbia River Gorge. Um, yeah, different areas in Washington definitely have faults, and it's not just a Western Washington. However, those deep earthquakes in the Cascadia subduction zone will definitely have a larger impact on Western Washington. Okay. Well, now, thanks for making me... No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> one last thing on earthquakes. So the the magnitude, the scale, uh, correct me if I'm describing this... Well, I... If I'm incorrect, I'm going to ask you to correct me. So a magnitude, say, 4 earthquake, then we have a magnitude 5 earthquake. That's that's not, that's not a that's a very significant jump from a 4 to a 5 or from a 5 to... It, these are not just stair steps. These go up kind of very quickly. Am I, am I correct in that? That's correct. Okay. So this is more based on a logarithmic scale of energy release. Um, So a magnitude 5 is 32 times more powerful than a magnitude 4 earthquake. If you jump that up to a 6, that's going to be 32 times 32 times more powerful than a 4. And then, so it keeps getting larger. So yes, anytime you have an increase of 1 in magnitude, that's a significantly larger earthquake that's happening. Yeah, the energy an earthquake releases, its magnitude, is based on how large of an area of the fault slips, how quickly it slips, and uh, kind of some geophysical coefficients in between them (laughs) based on the friction and things like that. Um, But ultimately, if a larger area slips, it's going to be a larger earthquake. That's why our 700-mile-long Cascadia subduction zone Mm -hmm. that goes from the northern point of Vancouver Island down to um, Eureka area, California, um, that's going to be the magnitude 9 earthquake. That's a tremendous amount of energy release. Um, compared to, I believe, the max on Seattle Fault is somewhere around 7.2. Um, okay. Much shorter fault, much shorter fault surface. Okay. 
Does that make sense? It does. It okay. does. So you're, you're, all, you're very knowledgeable about earthquakes, but volcanoes are maybe your thing. That's the way to put it. And I we have some, enjoy we have some them volcanoes. <laughs> okay. You enjoy them a little more. Okay. So, and we have some volcanoes here. Let's, we let's do. talk about those and how, how our region has, yeah, volcano, volcano activity. Yeah. So Washington has five active volcanoes. Now we consider them active because they've all erupted in the past 10,000 years. It doesn't sound like much, but in geological time, that's, that's pretty recent activity. And what that means is pretty much just add magma and any of these can start erupting again. Now, any of them that haven't erupted in a while, that's going to take a long time. So the big difference here with getting warning before an eruption is monitoring. So we have the Cascades Volcano Observatory run by the U.S. Geological Survey. They work out of Vancouver and they watch all of these volcanoes very closely. So if anything starts happening, they can let us know right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Mount Rainier, uh, Mount St. Helens, these are two of the most heavily monitored volcanoes on the planet. Um, but so what are the, the, what are the oh, other three in our area? So going from north to south, we've got Mount Baker up north. Um, Glacier Peak is kind of hiding in Snohomish County, um, but that's not really a very... It's, it can be a very explosive volcano. Um, mm-hmm. All the volcanoes kind of have their own personalities, um, ways they've erupted in the past. And that's kind of where you get the guess of what they might do in the future again. Um, okay. Our other one is Mount Adams. Um, now, that's kind of a, a lower hazard one. Uh, the USGS has a rating system where they consider um, Baker, Glacier Peak, St. Helens, and Rainier all to be very high hazard. And Mount Adams is considered high hazard. So just kind of the second category down. But that's based on what their hazards are, how many people are exposed to the hazards, and also how frequently they erupt. Um, Mount St. Helens is actually number two in the United States, with Mount Rainier as number three. What's number one? Kilauea in Hawaii. Okay. Just because it's constantly erupting and people are all exposed to the hazard. So, Um, and as we saw in 2018, it's, it's definitely hazardous. And it's doing it again right now. So. Okay. So St. Helens is the most, you know, that's happened in our, our lifetime eruption. A couple times. Yeah. Oh, it has a couple? Right. Yeah. So it had its, its really famous eruption that kind of woke us up to volcanic hazards in the Cascades in 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, it had continued eruptions um, through 1980. It wasn't just that one pulse. Um, there was another series in 1986. And then it had this eruption again between 2004 and 2008. Uh, Most of what it did in that time was just building domes, but there were several explosions. It's trying to build itself up again, um, as, as volcanoes do. So it's, it's, it's upset that Glacier Peak is taller than it. So it's trying to uh, redeem its place in the hierarchy. Like I said, they all have their personalities. Maybe that's what it's thinking about. (laughs) It was it was interesting. We have a we have a, a water bottle that we did with the five highest peaks in Washington State, and it, when it was sent to me for proof, I looked at it and go, "How come St. Helens is on this?" <laughs> it was like, "Oh yeah." It was uh, significantly shortened a while ago. Yeah, <laughs> but it's I, okay. still really impressive if you ever get a chance to climb it. I, yeah, and I have not, but I have talked to people that have, and they they. I'll concur with that statement that it is a spectacular peak. So you, you're, you study volcanoes. You're that's kind of 
your wheelhouse. What is it about them that you find fascinating? Oh, man, mainly I just think it's it's awe-inspiring just to see how much power they they have. These are these are just natural phenomena beneath our feet. They create new land. Um and it's also fascinating just the cultural aspect. If you listen to some of the stories about here um, from the people, I mean, we have, it's Tahoma, it's not Mount Rainier, mm-hmm. um, but it has a personality. There's stories about the mountain talking to people. And it's just, it has this significant cultural impact. Um, and the volcanoes I studied were in Guatemala and Mexico, but it's right. still really interesting just speaking to the people that live around there. Um, kind of what impact having this mountain that might explode at some point has on the culture of the people that live there. Um, everyone has their own stories about it and just kind of their own inclinations about what it means and how important it is to them. Um, yeah, the, the one in Mexico had a lot of stories about UFOs around it, which was interesting. But um, hmm. it, it was interesting that everyone had one. Maybe the, the aliens are recharging their spacecraft at the uh, at the volcano. Oh. Okay. Also, that is what keeps it from erupting badly, apparently. So... Well, even though we're just about Washington State here, I'm gonna I'm gonna go off script. Well, this whole interview has been off script, but I'm really gonna go off script. So, is is Everest Mount Everest considered an active volcano? It is not volcanic. No, it is not volcanic. Is Kilimanjaro? I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I guess what I'm trying to figure out. So. If if these if these have not had any activity for over ten thousand years, then they're not considered active. I believe Kilimanjaro is volcanic, so that, that's a difference here. It was formed by eruptions. Okay. And actually, if you look at Kilimanjaro, it has that very kind of symmetrical cone shape that most mm-hmm. volcanoes do. That is a volcano, whether it's whether it's an active one or not. I'm I'm actually not sure on that. Okay. Um, I haven't looked in that region much, although there are a ton of volcanoes in eastern Africa. Um. And that whole region is very volcanically active, um, which surprises a lot of people. Um, yeah, Mount Everest, right. though, is um, that's formed by uplift. That's actually you get that massive uh, subduction we were talking about. Mm-hmm. That's where the entire continent of India is being subducted underneath the continent of Asia, which is why you get this massive, massive uplift under there because it's a continent going under a continent. Mm-hmm. In our case, the crust going underneath us is is much lower. Um, it's much thinner, so you don't get as much uplift. Okay. Um, but yeah, <laughs> a couple different ways to make mountains. Um, okay. See, um, I love recording these because I always learn something, even if it makes me look like I you know should have paid more attention in high school. I know. I got to look up Kilimanjaro's volcanic history now, just in case that question <laughs> comes up again. But. <laughs> Well, let's let's transition into the Great Washington sh- Shakeout, which is happening on October twenty first of twenty twenty one. Yes, it's the third Thursday of October every year. The th- oh, thank you for that. Okay, so why don't you? So first off, this is a national event, but Washington State participates in, correct? Yeah, this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's an event that started in California. Uh, it's a global earthquake drill Um, it's just everybody practices drop cover and hold on which is the Mm -hmm. proper way to protect yourself in the united states at least when an earthquake occurs japan as well new zealand a few countries around the world Um, based on our construction standards that Mm -hmm. is the safest way to protect yourself when an earthquake strikes Um, this year 2021 is washington's 10th year participating in the drill 
Um, so we just kind of think of this as if there is one day every year that you think about earthquake hazard in Washington, all that stuff I just mentioned, those three kinds of faults, uh, and the fact that we can't predict when an earthquake will occur. Um, it could happen tomorrow, could happen next week, could happen not within our lifetime. There's always that chance, and I, I kind of count on that every day. Um, but we always <laughs> try to prepare for it just in case. So if you only think about it once per year, think about it on the Great Washington Shakeout. Um, so all we want, as the bare minimum, everybody to spend a minute to drop cover and hold on wherever you are at, well, this year it's 1021 on 1021, so 1021 a.m., um, yeah, wherever you are, set an alarm or something, drop cover and hold on. Now, are there going to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Will any emergency notification systems be activated for this in, for our test purposes? So the one big one that we want to make sure everyone knows about is, uh, so on the, on the coast of Washington, um, all 3,000 miles of coast has a hazard for tsunamis, like we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, now, we also have 122 tsunami sirens that are now installed on the coast at this point. Um, we're going to test those at 1021 okay. um, a.m. So they'll make the actual wailing sound. Um, it's going to sound like there's something bad happening. Mm -hmm. But this is just a test. If it's at 1021, um, and okay. there will be an announcement after that saying it's a test for the Great Washington Shakeout. Um, any other time when you hear those sirens, you want to get to high ground as fast as possible. Um, but that'll be a test. As far as other systems, we won't have any of the wireless emergency alerts going out. Um, but there might be some local communities. If you're signed up for local alerts, which is a good idea, um, some of them might send out a test message like this is the great Washington shakeout practice, drop cover and hold on. Um, but hopefully if they do them right, they will say, this is just a test. It's just a drill. Um, but I'm not aware of anything other than the sirens that will be going off um, as a, an alert system. However, if you would like to practice and you would like an audio recording, um, our website, mil.wa.gov, that's mil.wa.gov um, slash earthquake. Um, you can find an audio recording there that it basically you can play in the background while you do a drill that says like this is the shakeout, drop cover and hold on now. So if you if you want somebody to tell you what to do, that sort of thing. <laughs> well, I'd like you to elaborate on drop cover and hold. Why those three steps? Absolutely. So you can kind of apply these to any situation. Basically, what you want to do is get to the ground. Um, earthquake shaking, it is very difficult to move. Picture the ground moving in all directions um, unpredictably, accelerating very quickly in one direction, then another. You can't stand, you can't walk, and you want to make sure that you are not thrown to the ground. So when you drop, you lower your center of gravity, you get down close to the ground. Now, so that's drop. Um, cover, you want to cover your head and neck. This is those are kind of important parts of your body, I like to say. Um, there's, there's stuff in there <laughs> that you want to keep, so you want to yes. prevent it from being injured. Um, when we say cover, it can also mean take cover. If you're near a sturdy desk or table, you want to get under that. Um, you can still cover your head and neck with your other hand. But mm -hmm. the third step, hold on to that cover. Now, when the ground's accelerating in all directions, that cover can shake away from you. Um, if you hold on to it, you can prevent that from happening. Think about holding on to an umbrella uh, during a heavy rainstorm. You want to keep that cover above you. Um, 
and you want to hold on until the shaking stops. So get down to the ground, cover your head and neck, and hold on to your cover and hold that position until the shaking is over. Um, these are big things. And actually, the U.S. Geological Survey and a bunch of scientists from all over the world just... I would not have wanted to do this research, so I'm really glad someone did. Um, but they searched through several earthquakes in the United States, in New Zealand. Um, they looked at all the injury data, and they found that people who are moving while the ground is shaking are twice as likely to be injured as people who do not. Mm. Um, so that's why this drop and take cover where you are is a really, really important step. This is for your immediate safety during an earthquake. And if we go back to that Nisqually earthquake... We were extremely lucky that there were no deaths in this earthquake, but 400 injuries. And almost everyone I talked to either got up and ran for a door. That is not a safe action. We do not want to promote that. We want people to drop cover and hold on. Mm -hmm. um, in addition, a whole bunch of people ran out of their buildings. And if you look at pictures from the damage here, especially, uh, well, you were mentioning stair-stepping cracks in bricks um, mm -hmm. on the outside of buildings. If you look at these pictures from Pioneer Square in Seattle, um, it's this damage to this unreinforced masonry. Uh, now that's like brick buildings that don't have rebar in them. They're they're perfectly great for standing up to the forces of gravity, but when they start shaking side to side, those right. walls just peel off. So most of this damage you see is piles of bricks in the streets right outside of buildings. And when you run out of the building, you expose yourself to being hit by that ton of bricks. Uh, it is much safer to stay inside right where you are. I mean, it does seem almost counterintuitive though i mean it does i think you know it's, <laughs> i don't want the building to fall on me so i'm going to go outside seems like logical but now that you mentioned those photos from pioneer square and there's a ton of brick, crushed cars oh, right those yeah. bricks didn't fall that far away i mean they I could just see bad timing. You step outside the entrance of your your dwelling or wherever you are and something from the, the building falls on you because that's the way it's going to go. It's not going to be flung miles and miles away. So you probably are safer. And, and I know not probably I, you are safer, but it does seem counterintuitive to, to, to drop cover and hold on. And that's why to me, <laughs> yeah, I can understand <laughs> that. The other thing about this is most earthquakes are actually not that big. Um, so the vast majority of ones that people will feel are smaller, but smaller earthquakes can still do damage. And the first things that are going to break are going to be like things falling on you. Um, mm -hmm. You're talking about your server rack tipping over, um, right. things like that. Um, so what you do when you cover is you're taking cover from those things falling on you, um, mm -hmm. things that are right around you as well. Um, and the way buildings are built in the U.S., collapse is not a huge hazard. And that's the main reason. If you go to other countries, there may be some different advice. People are encouraged to run outside because their buildings are likely to collapse. Here, that is not oh. the case. Okay. Um, so that's that's kind of the big thing. Um, the other thing is, yeah. <laughs> so to counter that counterintuitive nature of I want to run outside versus staying where you are, um, we want people to practice. And that's why the Great Shakeout helps. And we also have an earthquake early warning system in Washington now, the USGS has Shake Alert, which can provide you with seconds of warning. Um, basically, it detects that an earthquake has started, and hmm. it lets you know that the shaking of a certain intensity is going to reach you shortly. Um, and how does this? How does this? How does one get um, 
those notifications? So this is enabled on all mobile phones in Washington. Um, oh. If you have an iPhone, it actually comes through the WIA system, wireless emergency alerts, which is kind of like how you get Amber alerts. Mm-hmm. So because of that, we want to make sure everyone has gone on and enabled those alerts if you want to receive earthquake early warning. Um, it should be enabled by default, but there's that possibility you got woken up by an Amber alert in the middle of the night and went, I want to turn this off. If you did that, you're not going to receive earthquake early warnings. Um, so there's no app okay. to download or anything. Uh, if you okay. have an Android phone, uh, Google has actually built this software into the phones. And you can look in your location settings. And there is a setting for earthquake alerts. Uh, the two are a little bit different. Um, we don't have any apps or anything to download in Washington, though. It's just um, okay. just these two systems built into your phone. But those can give you seconds of warning before an earthquake shaking. And like you said, that feeling when you first get that earthquake, whether you're thinking that your dog just jumped on your bed or whether you think you got a flat tire if you're driving, those mm-hmm. few seconds to orient yourself and say, whoa, no, this is an earthquake. I need to protect yourself can really prevent a lot of injuries or worse. So we're really excited about this system. And how long has this system been in place? Uh, we released it on May 4th this year in Washington. Oh, so it's brand it's brand new then. This is a brand new. Uh, yes. Well, <laughs> well okay. we've, been, we've been working on it since about 2006 with a bunch of university partners and uh, the United States Geological Survey is kind of the, the big voice behind it. Um, California's had it running for a little while and uh, Oregon released it March 11th this year. So we're just slightly okay. behind them. But uh, if you follow the shake alert, which is what the system is called, um, they'll constantly give it in. Um, it's already been working a bunch in California. Um, so what I like to say is they are testing it for us. <laughs> so yeah, the okay. system still has some improvements to make, but overall it's, it's been more good than bad, um, especially in our areas that have high station density. Um, so we've got seismometers to detect earthquakes all over Washington, um, which is an important part of this because the more stations you have close to each other, the faster it can detect that earthquake and the faster it can send out that alert. So maybe a couple more seconds. Okay. Besides knowing to drop, cover, and hold, are there other things that we can do to be better prepared? Absolutely. So um, we like to say people should drop, cover, and hold on. And if you have the time, if you have the motivation, if this is the only time you think about earthquake preparedness, um, do one more thing, at least one more thing. Um, Now, you were talking about servers tipping over. you can anchor things into place. You can make sure that your cupboards have earthquake latches on them. They can also serve as childproof latches. Um, but you can do all sorts of things in the area around you. I actually strapped down my computer monitor um, so that that won't tip over. Um, some of these things will help prevent you from being injured. Um, some of them will actually prevent you from maybe some um, economic losses as well. Uh, when an earthquake occurs, you don't want to lose your whole cabinet full of plates. That's that's difficult to replace, and the shards are dangerous. Right. Um, so anything you can do now to help mitigate that earthquake hazard um, is going to help you when an earthquake happens. Again, that not moving during an earthquake thing. Um, can you guess what the place where people have been safest when an earthquake occurs statistically is? No, I'm not going to guess. Okay. Um, <laughs> surprisingly enough, it's staying in bed. Really? Yeah. Um, But when I talk to a lot of folks, like parents want to get up and run to their kid's room when the ground is shaking. So that's one of those things we want to, again, you, it's going to be hard to fight that impulse. So we want people to practice, get that muscle memory 
and train everyone in their family so that they know the safest thing to do is to stay where they are. Now, the safest thing you can do to mitigate that impulse as well is make sure that your children's room is safe. Um, you don't want any heavy things on the wall above their bed, um, picture frames, things like that. Um, actually, funny story with that. I was helping a friend move, and uh, she collected swords. <laughs> so hmm. when I'm helping her move, and there's this nice shelf above her bed where she put this uh, these really nice uh, model Lord of the Rings replica swords. Um, as the earthquake person in there, I said, nope, you are putting this somewhere else. Um, which, <laughs> during an earthquake, you would really not want to have that without some sort of museum putty or anything uh, holding it down. Even then, I wouldn't really want it to be there. You can't predict where that's going to shake to. So, um, yeah, it's some of this is... It's common sense, but it's not common sense if it's not things that you don't think about every day. Um, Yeah, everything you're saying about, you know, earthquake latches, not having sharp objects above your bed, those make sense. I think it's the, and I'm not trying to argue with you and say this other doesn't make sense, but it's the the counterintuitive to drop. For me, to me, even though I just, you know, five minutes ago agreed with you and said, yeah, there was a whole bunch of bricks outside in Pioneer Square, you know, and my, it feels like I want to get outside, but I've never thought about it in the terms like the ground is shaking underneath my feet. I just didn't, which seems really silly to say out loud publicly, but you know, what the heck? Um, it, but you, I, I logically, everything you're saying makes absolute logic, logical sense. And I think we just have to slow down for a minute, prepare and practice. I mean, we, we need to have that. And if we have children in our houses, we need to train, help our children understand these things too. So, yeah. And I mean, the folks we talk to in the tsunami hazard zones along the coast, um, they should be thinking about getting to higher ground. But mm-hmm. if you're trying to run to higher ground while the ground is shaking violently and unpredictably underneath you, you've got a much higher chance of getting injured by something. And that's going to make it so much more difficult to walk to high ground. So you fall and break your leg. Um, right. So the recommendation out there, drop cover and hold on, then get to high ground as fast as you can. Right. What else, you know, on this topic, what else should I have asked you that maybe I didn't? Um, What else do we need to try to help to share this knowledge to our audience? Well, I would say the other thing that we can do um, when you're getting prepared for an earthquake, practice. Practice makes perfect, and we all want to be perfect. So. Might not get there, but practice will help um, get rid of those those kind of counterintuitive parts of it, like dropping to the mm-hmm. ground. Um, again, securing the things around you. Just secure your space. Think about the things that might fall and injure you. Um, and just look around you. Um, after you drop cover and hold on, come up and come up for air. Think about things that might be a hazard. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing you can do, though, is just check to see kind of how prepared you are. An earthquake could cause a long-term power outage. It could disrupt um, supply lines, and especially because we have this big hazard of the Cascadia subduction zone off the coast. A magnitude mm-hmm. 9 earthquake, um, that would cause long-term disruption because you got to think about all the bridges that would be taken out. Um, you have to think about how long power would be out. Um, airports are going to be out, so it's difficult to fly supplies in. Um, the way we like to think about this is other people will be coming to help you as soon as possible, mm-hmm. but that's going to take some time. So the more you can do to be prepared for yourself, 
um, you and your neighbors are going to be the first responders before the other first responders get there. Um, so being as prepared as you possibly can, food, water, um, just we call it like building a kit and being prepared for an emergency. Anything you can do to help that. In Washington, we recommend that everyone gets two weeks ready, um, two weeks worth of supplies. And mm-hmm. that came out of just preparing for this earthquake. Um, now, we understand that two weeks is kind of a daunting amount of supplies, especially if you have a lot of people in your family, uh, especially if you live in a situation where it's kind of difficult to store things or it's even difficult to purchase things. But the point is, anything you have is better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if you just check your pantry and you have some non- non-perishable foods, a few cans of foods will go much farther than not having anything in your pantry or only having things in your fridge that'll go bad. Uh, you know, storing water can be difficult too, um, but getting things like a water filter can be very helpful. We know this is the Pacific Northwest. A lot of water is around if you <laughs> if you know where to look, but as long as you have some ways, whether it's water filters, uh, things like iodine or chlorine tablets, just a way to boil water. Um, these will help you get a lot further with that water you have. Well, thank you for taking, well, but actually before I thank you. So Brian, when you're, when you're not working with the state on earthquakes and volcano prep and all that, what do you like to do? Uh, what do you do for fun and excitement? Oh, I do like to get out and try to explore Washington a little bit as well. Um, I've done some good backpacking trips recently, and I can highly recommend doing that around our volcanoes whenever possible. They are incredible landscapes. Um, I recently went to Mount Adams and went up to the Devil's Garden there. Uh, It's a long trip, but it is a really amazing landscape, and I highly recommend that if anybody gets a chance. But yeah, just Uh, what. What's next? I mean, so you, you did that hike, but what, what do you want? What do you aspire to next? Um, I'd love to explore more of the North Cascades. There's so many lakes and mountains in that area. And yeah, just find a beautiful spot to either camp or uh, even just finding a nice spot to eat lunch. That's, that's kind okay. of the goal, I think. Okay. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for making this happen. Um, I Very informative and entertaining at the same time, which is kind of, Oh, it's not the trifecta. It's the goal though, emerging those two things together of, of informative and, and engaging. And you did, you did really well on that. I appreciate that. I learned a ton. And once again, the, the shakeout is October 21st, which is, you know, really close to when this is going, but this, this episode is going to be applicable. Um, it doesn't have to be just one day. I mean, you, we could all slow down a little bit and take a look at the, the guidelines that have been put together and have be prepared, be better prepared, maybe practice, do it again next year so that we can be prepared. So we'll put some links in the show notes uh, to, to some of the content you guys have put out. There's a lot of content you've, you guys have shared, which is awesome. Oh, thank and, you so uh, much. Yeah. If you got some yeah. uh, cold or rainy weekends coming up with this whole winter thing that happens here, um, <laughs> yeah, feel free to take a look at materials and take stock of your preparedness. Just awesome. do it when you have time and when you think about it is... All right. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me and take care. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.